Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us as Pastor Kevin Dibley begins a new series, From Brokenness to Blessing, Into the Heart of God. The life of Abraham is a fascinating one because, as we will see, Abraham's journey was not so much a journey to the land of Canaan, but actually a journey towards heaven. His destination is not so much an earthly one, but a spiritual one. It's a journey of a fatherless and airless man into the presence and promise of God. It's a journey into the very heart of God. God takes a broken family and a broken man and shows him that he'll make him a father of many nations, who reflects the very heart of God the Father himself. This is an invitation to you all to bring your brokenness and join us in our study of the life of Abraham. May the story of Abraham's journey from brokenness to blessing become the story of all who find the hope of God by faith as he did. Let's worship together. So here we are in Genesis 17. We're making our way through the life of Abram. And he's about to change his name to Abraham finally. So if I, I'll start... I, I was calling him Abraham when he was Abram, so now I'll start calling him Abram now that he's Abraham. <laughs> but you know who I'm talking about, right? You know where I'm going here. <laughs> um, but this is one of those great texts. You know, I, I continually come to passages like Genesis 12, Genesis 15, uh, Melchizedek text, all those texts. Go, this is an important one. Um, but what you see is the unfolding of God's covenantal plan through Abraham, which is ultimately realized where? In Jesus Christ, the, the true seed of Abraham, where, through whom all the nations will be blessed. This is another one of those. This is where God comes to Abram after 13 years of doing his own thing. Remember last week, Abram decided to grab the pen from God and write it, write it his way? Well, God lets him write for 13 years. Can you imagine? Doesn't God do that with us sometimes? He leaves us out there. And, uh, but he's not left us out there. And that's why I started out the service by saying he's working in the waiting. And so God is at work during this time. But we're going to come into this text of Scripture and see God establish his promise to Abram, changing their names and establishing the covenant, the sign of circumcision. All of it indicating God's eternal trajectory and his plan. So uh, this is key in the New Testament. You'll come across it quite a bit in terms of the writer to Hebrews and other places, Galatians, those of you who are studying in Galatians, Colossians, um, just uh, this is a rich and important text. So listen to the word of God and then let's give our hearts and our minds to the study of the word. So when Abram, verse 1, when Abram was how old? 99. So any of you who are in your retirement years, ministry can just start happening, right? Isn't that great? When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord be, appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, 
all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Who's the actor here? Who's going to do it? Isn't that great news? Just, just relish the I will, Abram. Abram who's trying to make it work. <laughs> Abram who's trying to pull it off. Uh, Abram, it's me. It's not you. It's me. I'm at work. And, Abram, and God said to Abram, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. And this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations who's born in your house, bought with your money from any foreigner who's not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall be circumcised. So my so shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So with Noah, what was the sign of the covenant? The rainbow. Moses with the Mosaic law, what was the sign of the covenant? Sabbath was the sign of the covenant. Here, circumcision for Abraham. And Abraham, of course, this is a spiritual, a physical representation of a spiritual reality that will be fulfilled in who? Jesus Christ. So God says in verse 15 to Abraham, Abraham, notice they've already changed it, I've got to adjust. As for Sarai, your wife, you will not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations, and kings of people shall come from her. And Abraham put his fingers in his suspenders and said, I'm a big deal. What did he do? Number two time, and Abraham fell on his face, and he laughed. And he said to himself, shall a, man, shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Roland, how old are you? Are you 100 years? Oh, 38. So you're doing great. <laughs> right? Um, says, and God said, and Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call him Isaac, which means what? Laughter. There'll be a lot of laughter at what God does. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall, be a father, father, he shall father twelve princes. And I will make him into a great nation, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Finally, finally. And when he had finished talking with him, God went up from, God went up from Abram. Then Abram took Ishmael his son, and all those who were born in his house were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abram's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abram was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 
when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. The very day, that very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house, and those bought with money from a, from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. How old is Ishmael? Thirteen, about the time he was ready to become a man and Abram had invested in him and lived in the wilderness, pen in hand, writing his own story, God shows up and says, oh, by the way, you are not the author. Right? You're not the author. I'm the author. And so nice little story. Been watching. That's good. But while you've been watching, I've been working. And I am showing up now to realize all that you've been waiting for. God patiently comes along. You know, isn't it true that God allows us to run off and write our own little stories for a while? In order that we might ask deeper questions. Right? He lets us, you know, this is, we're helicopter parents. We hate to see our kids struggle. God is like a patient parent. He just lets them struggle out there for 13 years. Well, it's been 25 years since he's called them. 13 years since they had Ishmael. And God just lets them sit there and, and ferment. <laughs> and you know, there's got to be stuff going on in Abram like, you know, this doesn't feel right. You, know, you ever have that feeling? I'm not sure this is it. I hope this is it, right? Uh, and we, we want to see problems solved quickly. We want to put in, like Abram, solutions to the difficulties. But here's the reality. The truth is, none of us want anything as people of God except the story God's writing. I mean, truthfully. If, if we're in a right mind, we want God to do what God is going to do, and God works in the broken places. God works in difficult stories. And God is doing stuff in people's hearts while it seems like God is not doing. Sometimes you need to be left out there and just sit in it for a while and see it unfold. Isn't it amazing how patient God is? I mean, you read the story and he says, you know what, I'm going to give you the promised land. Like, um, they're going to go to Egypt, they're going to be there, what? 400 years, I'm going to be in the wilderness 40 years, and you're going, wait, most of us in the Western world will go, well, what kind of promise is that? I want to see happy ever after by Tuesday. I want to see it all realized now, but God's timing is not our timing. God's ways, because God is up to something bigger than us. He's working in us, but He's working in and through us for something far more Glorious, And so I love this line in Genesis 17, 17. Abram fell face down and he laughed and he said to himself, Really? <laughs> can a child be born to a hundred-year-old man? Can Sarah, a 90-year-old woman, give birth? God comes in and says, sorry, um, the pen. <laughs> he says, I've been writing. This is my story. This is my grand narrative. There's something bigger than you. And I'm letting you do this uh, and wait on this because that's part of the story. And this part of the story is essential for my part of the story. Even your hundred years awaiting, Abram, is necessary to the big narrative. Aren't you glad Abram waited a hundred years? Till it was absolutely impossible for him to say, it was me. 
Why do we need to hear that? We need to hear that because most of us would not go on mission if we thought it depended on us. Or many of us would think we're too far gone, we're too old, we're too broken, we're too stained, we're too troubled, we're too crazy for God to use us. Good news, God uses the impossible to do the, he uses what seems impossible to do what's possible for him. And so you know what? Um, Counselor Jade Mazarin writes this words, something actually happens while nothing is happening. You and I need to think about that. God uses waiting to change us. He's prepping. He's preparing. He's maturing. Or he's catching us up in the ecclesiastes of vanity. Vanity, all is vanity. You remember that scene in Ezekiel chapter 37? This is what God loves to do. He takes the prophet out to a, a field of army soldiers who have not only died in battle, but their bones are there. And he asks a simple question, can what? These dry bones live. And Ezekiel connected them dry bones. In. No, you know what? That's a bad song because Ezekiel didn't connect any dry bones. Right? God, essentially, he preached to them and they rose up, but it's God who does it. Second Peter chapter 3 says to us, when we're coming to the end of the ages in the gospel or in, in, in the New Testament, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, what? One day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. Thirteen years is not a thousand years, but it felt like a thousand years. It felt like God wasn't coming in, but this is what God loves to do. God loves to work in the waiting. God loves to cause us to sit there and go fix it now. And God says, just wait, just watch. There's some things that need to be done here that you can't see, right? His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Are, are you tuned into that? So, um, Bruce, um, by the way, you should see Bruce's painting. Uh, he just sent me uh, that he's doing of Abram. And I think it's Abram. It, it sure looks like it could be Abram, if that's what Abram. It's a, it's a really nice piece. But Bruce sent me... Um, a link to uh, an interview um, by Cherie Harder from the Trinity Forum with uh, Christian artist uh, Makoto Fujimori. And uh, he, his particular art form, I, I want to introduce you to it, is Japanese Nihonga art, which is called slow art. And uh, he's purposeful in his art because what he is teaching, in fact, Nihonga art that's how you say it properly, but Nihonga art is actually Japanese art written to, uh, done to be distinctive from Western art. And you know what the difference is? The pace. The Western world is what? We are productive. We got a time schedule. We want to see, we want to mark off, we want to be able to say achievement. Nihonga art, Japanese art, is called slow art where they work away slowly, realizing that if you don't go at a pace, 
If you don't go in layers, if you don't take your time, you'll end up missing out on some things that happen in the waiting. Happen in the waiting. So I got a quote here from him. All of us are pulverized in some way as we're made beautiful. And so they'll take uh, oyster shells as part of it and they'll pulverize it. And then, you know, when, when uh, Makoto Fujimori does his artwork, you can show up one of his, I think I put, there's one of his art pieces that I think that's called Walking on Water Breakers. But um, what he will do is he will do 80 to 100 layers before he begins to paint the picture that he's going to. And that's one of the things he's famous for is people will come and look and they'll begin, you know, you look at it and it doesn't look like something and then you can realize back behind here you wouldn't see this if this layer wasn't there. And he begins to work the layers in. Now I want to read you, well, there's part of a quote up here, but I want to read you a quote from, because um, uh, he's a believer, Makoto, as he describes what is important. He's saying, you know, one of the things as Christians that we need to get into our lives is a willingness to sit in suffering and let suffering do its work so that we might experience Christ in the middle of it. We're so, we're so about fixing our problems. How much of our Christianity is asking God to fix our problems? How much of our Christianity is actually saying this, I want you what? I want you to fix it, not work in me. Right? I would rather have quick solutions. I want quick answers rather than Christ. I want solutions rather than what? Salvation. And God's up to something bigger. So listen to what uh, Fujimura says. If we care or want to know how deep the suffering of Christ goes and how vast and even violent is the restoration process through Christ's suffering, then we'd better start with knowing the dark, cruel reality of the fallen world. In other words, if you're trying to live a pain-free existence, you'll never get the gospel. If you want to avoid suffering, then you'll never understand. If you're going to keep your eyes you know, blinded to what's going on in the world, as Gail was, then you'll never understand what was going on on the cross. And so he says, if we care to embrace hope, despite what encompasses us, the impossibility of life and the inevitability of death, then we must embrace a vision that will endure beyond our failures. So we need to have the grand narrative so that when we're struggling, we can see the true hope of the gospel come forth. So here's the quote you have. We should not journey toward a world in which solutions to the problems are sought but a world that acknowledges the possibility of the existence of grace even beyond the greatest of traumas, the ground zero realities of our lives. You understand what he's saying there? We so much want to get out of the trauma, we don't get the experience to realize that there's enough grace for the trauma. You know, I was sitting here on Wednesday night with the children talking about trafficking in Nepal. Everything in you wants to turn it off. But then we miss the gospel. And all of us want it a quick remedy rather than the reality of Jesus. And he, here's the reality. I tell this to John all the time in our ministry. We're not called to fix everybody's problems. We can't fix everybody's problems, but we are called to show them the great shepherd of the sheep who will not let them go. 
that there's grace is sufficient for us and His power is perfected, what? In our perfection? In our problem-free lives? Where? No. So you know what? This is, this is what... I have a quote here on discipleship from Elizabeth Elliot. One does not surrender a life in an instant. That which is lifelong can only be surrendered in a lifetime. That's what life is, right? I, I hate to... T- if you came to be here that if you pray the right prayer, you go out today, you'll have money in the bank account and a good doctor's appointment. You need to understand, you're not going to go out in this moment. You're going to have to go out tomorrow and surrender to Jesus again. And again, and again, and again. And here's the good news of the Gospel. He is sufficient. Because He will never, what? Leave you or forsake you. The temptation we all face is we want solutions rather than salvation. We want quick answers instead of Christ. What did the Apostle Paul say his goal was? He said, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and I may share, that I may share in His sufferings. What? Becoming like Him in His death that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So here's the question of the day. What is it that you want from God? And here's the bigger question, what is it that God wants for you? Those can be pretty contradictory, can't they? But thank God He is for us and not against us. So that's what we have. Thirteen years, and God comes and takes the pen away (laughs) from Abraham. Walks in, and he speaks to him. So here's what happens, first of all, in this text. Abraham gets a clear, corrected perspective. A clear, corrected perspective. The, the very first thing that happens in verse 1 is God speaks, and what does God say to Abram? I am God Almighty. In the corollary statement, and you are not. That's how it begins. I'm God Almighty, else should I. And when, when you hear this, In the Bible, we're reminded He is the potter, we're what? The clay. He's the artist, you're the art. Ephesians 2. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared, what? Beforehand, that we should walk in them. God's working behind the scenes, working in us, preparing. Do you realize your suffering is part of His preparation? He's crushing He's crushing that oyster shell, grinding the stones and the herbs to make the colors for the canvas, and layer after layer he's painting away. A hundred years of Abram's life, painting away, and now the story. Isn't it amazing how patient God is? But he is God Almighty. He's God Almighty. What's the significance of El Shaddai? Listen to R.C. Sproul. A better foundational meaning of El Shaddai may be the overpowerer, which emphasizes God's power to achieve all his purposes. Ultimately, it's impossible for anyone or anything to keep him from accomplishing his sovereign decrees. He has Psalm 115.3 there, which says, Our God is in the heavens, he does whatever he pleases. Isn't that good news? He does that even when I'm struggling. <laughs> When I'm resisting. And so that's why 
El Shaddai, God Almighty, is used in the book of Job near the end after all the boys have been talking about the way it should go and it's all Job's fault and all things are going on and then there's a conversation. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And then Job says to the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, now I'll shut up. Right? That's a hard one for us to swallow because we all think we know how it should go. But my dear friends, he is the Lord Almighty. And so what happens twice in this passage? Abram does what? He falls on his face. When does he fall on his face? Two times. At the very beginning, where God says, I am Lord Almighty, and then what does he say to him? Walk before me and be blameless. <laughs> oh, drop the pen. Right? How's it been going? How's it been going? How many of you have told spoken to me already going, it says Abraham was commended for his faith. Man, he doesn't look, he looks, you know, he looks pretty wobbly. Sarah does silly walks. Abram does silly walks. You look at him and you realize that Abram gets this revelation of the almighty authority, Job-like authority of God Almighty and the call to be blameless and he knows himself. And he falls on his face because the spiritual call of God for him to be blameless is what? Too much. Woe is me, I'm an unclean man, I dwell amongst the people, of, I'm a man of unclean lips, I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. The spiritual demands are too much, and then later on, the physical demands. I, I believe the later prophecy for Sarah is also a spiritual one, but even the the physical one, as for Sarah, your wife, she, you shall not call her Sarai, but you shall call Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. What does Abram do? Fall on his face. Shall a man who's a zillion years old have children? What's God saying here? I'm God Almighty. And it's clear that you're not. How long did it take Abram to figure that one out? <laughs> hundred years. How long does it take you to figure it out? Me. Aren't we prone to wander, Lord, I feel it? Prone to leave the God I love? Kenneth Matthews says, Abram's gripping response of falling down on his face expressed his awe at the theophany, the revelation of God. Also, it's the action accompanying profound pleading before the Lord in a moment of crisis. So there are examples in the Old Testament, for example, in the rebellion of the sons of Korah in Numbers chapter 16, where they come and rebel against Aaron and Moses, and they say, you've gone too far. Moses and Aaron fall on their face. Why? Because they know the Lord Almighty. And they know that the and God does deal with them. When Joshua goes to Ai and goes into battle and they lose the battle and they discover that Achan has idols under his tent, you know what Joshua does? Falls on his face. Why? Are they, what are they doing? They're saying, "We're not sufficient. We are guilty. We are unable." Here's Abram 
13 years after taking up the pen, falling on his face. I am the Lord God Almighty. Through Sarah, you'll have your son. He's looking at this and going, on one hand, he's laughing. Is it possible that God is actually going to do it? On wonder, the majesty of God and absolute inadequacy in and of himself. Falling down on his face. And so here's the question. Why does God let Abram do this for 13 years? And the bigger question is, why does God let us run so far? Let me read you a few quotes. A.W. Tozer, The reason why many are still troubled, still seeking, still making little forward progress is because they haven't yet come to the end of themselves. We're still trying to give orders and interfering with God's work within us. Isn't that true? We're trying to take the pen. And God will let the ink run out. (laughs) Listen to Matt Chandler in his uh, teaching series, Recovering Redemption. You have no shot at experiencing real change in life if you're habitually protecting your image, hyping your spiritual brand, putting out the vibe that you're a lot more unfazed by temptation than you really know, than the reality you know and live would suggest. Right? If you're trying to show you've got it together, right? You won't experience change. Change means you've got to get to dead in your bones. Can these dry bones live? Just think about that. I'm going to ask you that question today. Where is it that God is saying to you, can these dry bones live? Can I work here? Can I bring life? C.S. Lewis puts it interesting. He says, you know what? We have to run on for a little while. We have to do this for a reason. He says, now we cannot discover our failure to keep God's laws except by trying our very hardest and then failing Unless we really try whatever we say, there will always be at the back of our minds the idea that if we try harder next time, we, sh- we shall succeed in being completely good. Isn't that, isn't that the lie in our heads? I just, I'll, I'll fix it. I won't do that anymore. I've got this. Thus, in one sense, the road back to God is a road of moral effort, of trying harder and harder. But in another sense, it's not trying that is ever going to bring us home. All this trying leads to a vital moment at which you turn to God and say what? You've got to do this. I can't. That's why God lets us get to 100, to write for 13 years the story of our own deliverance. Timothy Lane, in his book, How People Change, says... Only when you accept the bad news of the gospel does the good news make any sense. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. But God can make you alive in Christ Jesus. The grace, restoration, reconciliation, forgiveness, mercy, patience, power, healing, and hope of the gospel are for who? Sinners. They're only meaningful to you. I love this line. It's my favorite line in this. If you admit you have the disease and realize it's terminal. Both of those things got to be there. You got to realize I'm prone to wander, and not only that, I'm, it's a deadly addiction. And if God doesn't intervene, I will surely die. That's why God does that. So here, here's how it starts a corrected perspective. A corrected perspective for Abram. Uh, he says to Abram, I am the Lord Almighty. And he says that to you. You are not. 
You're not the potter. You're the clay. You're not the artist. You're the art. That's good news. Is that a relief? So the question, one of the key questions in our discipleship is are you willing to fall on your face before God Almighty and admit that you're unable to write the story of your life? And are you ready and willing to embrace God's will and abandon self-will? That's a key moment in discipleship. You've got to fall on your face. Then we have Abram's... God doesn't just do a power trip here. Then God changes their names. I call this Abram's elevated potential. No longer shall you be called Abram, but your name shall now be Abraham. And this is great. It's like Ephesians chapter 3. God comes along to him and said, because I'm God Almighty, I can do for you what you can't do for you. He doesn't leave him there. He says, let's do some name changes. You had the name Abram. Abram means exalted father. Now what's your name? Abraham, the father of many nations. And so here's Abraham over here writing the story. I got Ishmael. He even says it in the text, right? He says in the text, can't we just do my story? Because that's what? Easier. Manageable. Isn't a lot of our praying, not thy will, but my will be done? Can't we just do it the way I would do it? Have you ever thought to God, why don't you do it my way? If I was God, God forbid, right? We do that kind of thing. God comes along and he says, can it just be? And God comes along and says, Let's talk about some name changes here, right now, right here. Abram, you're just going to build a nation. Yeah, sure, I'm going to bless, says later. I will bless Ishmael. He will have 12 princes. He will be a great nation. I'm not talking about making a great nation. I'm talking about a multitude of nations. Isn't that great news? It's those of you studying Galatians with the youth group. All about, I don't think you're there yet, but... When you get into it, God has planted through the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ, that there would no longer be Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but they'll all be one in Jesus Christ, right? He's bringing multitudes of nations. He calls Sarai what? Sarah. And in that, in that uh, passage, you know, they're, they're, they're close words. So the commentators talk about what Sarai means. Sarai could mean princess, probably means princess. Um, there is some evidence to say it could be contentious one. She certainly is that. You see her with Hagar. But he turns her to Sarah, which most of them translate my princess. And if it's just princess to my princess, you think, what does that mean? What's going on here? What he actually saying is, yeah, yeah, it's like Moses. You're an exalted father. You're an exalted princess. You're, you're somebody special. But you're somebody far more special in my plan. Because you're going to be the mother of nations. Imagine for Sarah seeing all the nations at the feet of Jesus. Worshipping. Sarah, you and Abram, you, you put Hagar into the mix. You have Ishmael and you kick Hagar out and you run it. Yeah, you could have this little nation. You could have a position of significance. People could come up and go, yeah, you're something. But that's not what my goal is. My goal isn't that they would say, yeah, you're something. My goal is that they would see that God is someone, Almighty God, who has worked through a seed like someone like Sarah, who is undeserving one, but who's been exalted by being the mother of the one through whom all the nations are blessed. 
You see, God isn't trying to damper their expectations. He's saying, the problem is you want a man-sized vision. And I have a God-sized vision for your life. And that includes getting to this age before you have a child. Do you have a God-sized vision? This is where C.S. Lewis's famous quote is, we keep drawing on it, but it's so good at a weight of glory. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but what? Too weak. Oh, God, fill my bank account. Oh, God, answer my marriage problems. Oh, God. He says, we're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Imagine what preoccupies us. What have you been praying about? I mean, here, here's the thing when you're going through a hardship. If, if you saw going through a trial and a hardship and a long lingering hardship would lead to nations of people falling before God in salvation in eternity. Would you complain? Well, you probably would, knowing you and me, right? That's our propensity. But that's what's going on here. He says, we're all thinking about this short-term thing, and that's why the, the Japanese artist, Fujimoru, make sure I say it right, says, you know what, we're, we're not willing to introduce times of suffering and hardship. We want to get solutions. But God is up to... Suffering brings salvation. Let's see the grace of God. Let's see what God... See, see, Sarah, what makes you powerful is you and your brokenness. Speak to women in 1 Peter 3. You and your hardship, lingering, grief, have an opportunity to speak to people about something that matters more than comfort now, right? Something far more glorious. So listen to Fujimura again. Well, I have a quote, sorry, I should give you the quote um, from Robert Jaffrey. He says, the supreme and crying need of the lost world is the gospel. Isn't that why we just get narrow focused in our praying? Shall we not rise at Christ's command to carry the blessed saving news to every perishing one? That's why we read Matthew chapter 6. Seek ye first, what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things. Don't be worrying about what you're going to clothe yourself with, what you're going to feed yourself with. Don't be spending all your time saving your life. Seek first the kingdom. God will take care of that because he's El Shaddai. We ought to have an increasingly expectant faith, not a tired, resigned fatalism. So again, listen to Fujimura. He says, Japanese often use the expression shikata ganai, there's nothing you can do, as a fatalistic response to a given circumstance. Listen to that. Believing in the sovereignty of God is not being passive. It means being engaged. They assume that circumstance is all there is. They face the Shakata Ganai with stoic resignation, but the Christian God offers a reality far greater, a possibility of the infinite breaking through. Even though the fallen world is cursed and operates with the limitations of a natural closed mechanism. So let me just tell you. Okay, I'm going to modify it because it's going to be really intense there. 
And the Holy Spirit went, ooh, buddy. <laughs> Friends, COVID is not stopping the kingdom of God at all. And this pause and this waiting, as frustrating as it is, is not God putting the pen down. This is all necessary in the last days to tune people's hearts to what they value and what they've been holding on to and what they fear and to tell them there is someone who is greater than all your fears and more satisfying than your check that's coming from the government in two weeks. Okay, I didn't do too good with that, but he would want me to say that nicer. Or at least my wife would. <laughs> That's why my, my wife is not in the... She would go... <laughs> Down, tiger. <laughs> oh, boy. But that, isn't, that, isn't that helpful for us? So let me ask you this question. What are you expecting God to do with your life? Are you expecting God simply to remove your trials? Or are you expecting Him to make a multitude of nations? at the feet of Jesus. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Here's the last thing. Boy, this is probably the wrong way to preach this. This is a big deal. The covenant of circumcision. But here's the incredible covenantal promise. Let me tell you this. Why does God choose this wacky thing called circumcision? Why does he do that? Why this is the symbol? And here's, I'm going to give you a real quick summary of what God is doing. God is promising through the act of circumcision, which is obviously deeply personal, and it's the cutting away of flesh. It's deeply personal. He's saying this, that God will cut away the flesh at a very personal level in order to bring us into his kingdom. And there's no entering the kingdom of God without the circumcision of your heart. And there's only one person who can do that. It's Jesus. And he will do that, often by bringing us to our knees before him, in our need. And we're going, I need my heart changed. So circumcision is God saying, God will do in our hearts through Christ. So just so you know this, Deuteronomy 30, this is Old Testament, under the Mosaic Covenant, around circumcision, listen to what it says, and the Lord your God will what? Circumcise your hearts and the heart of your offspring so that you will do what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, that you may live. Isn't that great news? So, so I want you to hear this because Abram said, God said, Abram, you're going to have a multitude of nations. He goes, Sarah and I? God's going, yeah, right. In fact, I'm going to use this hundred years so that people... A, million, a thousand years from now, we'll look back at Abram and Sarah and go, God can use them, he can use me. And they'll go to the mission field and God will give nations to Sarah and Abraham in the story. Isn't that great news? And then he comes and uses the instrument of circumcision to say, I'm going to establish a true seed of Abraham to fulfill all of this name, Jesus Christ. And he will come not to circumcise your flesh, but to cut away the fleshly parts of your heart that keep you from loving the Lord your God. Because Abram says, he says, Abram, be blameless. And Abram falls on his face. I'm not good at blameless. You don't have to be good at blameless. Because there's someone who coming who will. Listen to the scriptures again. This is from... Uh, Colossians 2, in him also you were, what? 
circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by the putting off of the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, into which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised who raises from the dead. Isn't that the gospel? And you who were dead in your trans, uh, trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. What is happening on the cross of Christ when his hands are being nailed, when his brow is being pierced, when his sword is being penetrated with the sword? What's going on there? What's going on there is our sins are being paired paid for so that we might have our hearts circumcised and in him we might be blameless. Only he can change Dibley's heart. Only he can change my heart. Now I fall on my face saying worthy is the lamb who was slain. Matt Chandler in his book on marriage writes God has seen our unloveliness the deep broken rebellion in our hearts And instead of withdrawing, he pursues us to the beautiful end. He made an eternal commitment to sinners because of his great love for us. And because grace is true, you can face the world with all of its dangers and troubles, knowing that you have been established forever as blameless by the Holy Groom, Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news? What's going on with circumcision in Genesis 17? God's saying what they were doing symbolically in the flesh, God is going to do in reality by Jesus Christ spiritually in your heart, cutting away the flesh that keeps you from loving God and giving you a new heart that loves Him. Praise God. Is that good news? So, Discipleship, then, is God doing a deep, deep work in our lives, in our hearts? And here's the question I want to ask you today. Would you invite God not to remove all your troubles, but to do that deep work, beautiful work, gospel work in your life? Not to ask for a quick fix, but ask that he would use your brokenness to bring the nations to him. And that he would bring you to your knees so that you would see your need of Christ. And that he would establish you blameless in Christ forever. Aren't you glad that's how the gospel reads? Man, that's great. That's Genesis 17. That's, that's Abraham. That's hope. Let's pray together. Our God, we thank you and praise you and bless you for your great love with which you've loved us. Thank you that you refused to let the pen go. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you even use Abram and Sarah's meandering for 13 years. You use their dead, aged bodies, 99 and 90, to teach us that these dry bones can live. So Father, if there's anyone here today that doesn't believe there's hope, doesn't believe that change is possible, would they 
here. You say, I am El Shaddai, the Lord God Almighty. I can do anything. With man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. God's people said, Amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.